Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskan. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. Good afternoon and welcome to Tuesday's Late Lunch. This is Barbara Scully with you again. What a gorgeous autumnal day it is outside today. It was 18 degrees in the car as I was driving into the studio. I always think, I mean, this is my favourite season of the year, my favourite time of year probably, but I always think there's something very calm about September when the trees are just slowly changing their clothes and the light seems to be particularly soft. I'm getting all lyrical here, but it really is. It's a beautiful day. So if you have the opportunity to get out for a walk, um, you should definitely grab it, uh, but not yet uh, because we have a great programme coming up for you again today. Um, We are going to be talking about all kinds of things from retiring early to what you should be putting in your kids' lunchboxes to brown bears. Um, And of course, you can let us know what you think about any of these topics. You can send us a text or a WhatsApp to 086-1800-658 or you can phone us at 041-9832-000. Right, well, to kick off business today, my first guest is Michael Houghton and I'm very uh, I'm very interested to talk to this guy because Michael is a member of the fire community in Ireland and he, that doesn't mean he's part of the emergency services, he's not a fireman nor is he a member as far as I know of any religious cult. FIRE stands for Financial Independence Retire Early and this is a community who believe in working hard and living frugally so that they can save and invest money that will enable them to retire early. I can't wait to hear more about this, although I think I've probably missed the boat. But anyway, welcome to Late Lunch, Michael. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Not at all. I'm really looking forward to talking to you, as I say, even though I'm I'm finding it all slightly depressing because I definitely have missed the boat. Um, But can you explain to us in a nutshell how this concept, this fire concept generally works? Yeah, sure. To be honest, it usually starts with, with some level of frustration by you know, typically somebody in their 30s or 40s who maybe feel like they're trapped in a rat race and getting up and doing the same thing day in, day out and not really feeling like they're getting ahead financially. And so typically when, when we start, we look at that and, and we start to kind of assess our situation and go, look, is there another way? And that's typically where the FIRE movement comes in. 
Um, and when you talk about living frugally, I mean, how frugal <laughs> is living frugally? It's a kind of phrase that would probably strike fear into the hearts of most people. Like, how much do you have to sacrifice and suffer <laughs> for this ideal? Yeah, it's definitely not a case of suffering. And, and we would, like, I've got three children myself. You know, we, we would have a very normal lifestyle. If you, if you met me on the street, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think twice about it. But there's some decisions that we make that, that maybe are just, just make more financial sense. So, for example, we drive older cars. We, we don't drive new cars to keep our transport costs low. But in saying that, we also make sure that we focus on getting a vehicle that's quite efficient when it comes to you know, filling it up each week. Um, you know, we, we live in a standard-sized house. We're not excessive on, on our housing. And then we shop at, you know, we, we shop at the, the cheaper supermarkets. We typically wouldn't get many takeaways in. So we're always watching and budgeting in each month just to make sure that we're, you know, we're not spending more than what we earn. And does that not get exhausting, Michael? Do you not ever, like, I mean, you talked about, you know, the motivation for doing, for, for doing this is to get out of the rat race. But does it not get exhausting constantly? I mean, we all have to watch budgets, but constantly focused on getting the best value and not spending money? Uh, yeah, there's, there's always an element of, of making sure that you're not sacrificing your time. I'm not, I'm not suggesting we all go and set our cars and, and, and you know, use public transport to get everywhere else. But the, the upside of that is that you start to see money being saved and you start to see your investment portfolio growing. So whilst you're you know, working hard on one side, which is reducing your expenses, you're then seeing this investment portfolio start to grow. And that's quite motivating and quite addictive in itself. Right. OK, I'll come back to that in a moment about the investments, because that's another thing that baffles me completely. But let's go back to the fact you mentioned there that you have uh, three children. Are, you th- are your children reasonably young? I mean, they must they be because you're the young. young. Yeah, the, the youngest is five and the oldest is 11. So, um, OK, yeah, so they, you, they keep us busy. OK, I'd say they do. But you haven't really kind of hit the really expensive time with kids yet, which is when they, well, the 11 year old is probably starting to make noises about technology and, you know, brands and getting, you know, various things that tend to cost a lot of money. How have you started to negotiate that yet or how will you, how are you anticipating that you will negotiate that when you get to that point? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Our, our children definitely appreciate the value of money and I think they've, they've learned that through, through us, I guess. So they're always conscious of the fact that, you know, when they're asking for something, that it might be expensive. Now, the best example I can give is my eight-year-old recently asked for a virtual reality headset. Right. And we picked, we picked one up secondhand for around 300 euros. He played with it for a week. You know, it's now collecting, <laughs> collecting dust in the corner. So that was a conversation with him to kind of sit down and go, look, did you really need that? Yeah. Something that you really needed? Or maybe next time, rather than it being a present, why don't we see if we can, you know, what, what can we do to maybe you, you pay for some of that, even if he were to say, say, 50 euro of that. Mm. It might make him think twice about if he really needed it or mm. not. So just trying to, trying to put through some of those. But yeah, absolutely. Look, trying to retire early with children, especially in Ireland where cost of living isn't, isn't exactly the lowest in Europe, is, is extremely difficult. But sometimes as well, it's about looking beyond that period as well. So uh, yeah, everybody has a different, um, a different journey and a different plan. And for many people in Ireland, you know, early retirement looks like something maybe in the early 50s when the kids have finally maybe mm. left university and they're starting to become more independent. Yeah, lol to that, she says, having just turned 60. But anyway, um, do your, are your children aware of the fact that they're living, if you like, more frugally perhaps than some of their uh, peers? And what definitely, do they think of that? Definitely. 
They, yeah, it's interesting. Like, for example, my son, when he had his communion, he actually put his communion, communion money into an investment property. No way. At the time. Yeah, Sorry, did. just so, say that again. Your, your so, son so made his communion. He, 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 he did, and he, and he had 500 euros in, in, in cash received. And at the time, we were, we were buying an investment property. So I said, look, would you like to actually put that money as part of the deposit that we're going to be putting down? And I calculated uh, basically a share for him, if you like, you know, just, just, <laughs> through, just through paper. And so he's, he's always asking, oh, how much is the house worth? How, how much is my share worth? So he's seen that go up by about 300 euros over two years to the point that my eight-year-old then came along and said, look, I've, I've saved 100 euros in pocket money. I now want to buy a share as well. So they've kind of seen that. And then even last weekend, we, we, we recently bought another investment property. So they were actually cleaning the property for us, with us. It was a family day out to go out. And, and there, you know, the, the five-year-old, you can imagine the five-year-old walking in with a duster. They were going around getting all the spiders off the corners and so on. So we've kind of embraced that and, and we've tried to combine kind of family fun days out into doing some of the things that, that the lifestyle kind of um, kind of dictates, I guess. <laughs> I'm fascinated. Now, you, you talked there about investing uh, your money into property. Um, and I know, you know, I don't want to seem like Methuselah here, um, but, but, you know, we had a fairly serious property crash, which probably we won't have again. But we're certainly in uncertain times when it comes to property values. How are you going to explain to your son if his communion money all ends up going down the pan because the property market starts to crash? Yeah, well, I guess I guess my look. I'm from New Zealand originally, and and for anybody that's that's lived in New Zealand or Australia, would probably be very familiar that property prices there are, are significantly higher than what they are certainly you know in, in the smaller parts of Ireland. So, nice. like like for me buying a a, a, a a rental property here, you know, you're still you're still able to generate some decent yields. I, I wouldn't be so much worried about the price, just more about what you know what, what what's a what's a reasonable rent to charge somebody. To what you're going to be, what they're going to be getting. I'm, I'm certainly not trying to to be greedy or anything like that. I'm, I'm I'm looking at it from more of a a balanced approach of what's a fair rent to be charging somebody here to what the value of the house is, yeah. and, and basing the investment more on that. To be honest, if property prices were to fall, I would actually relish that opportunity to to be able to pick up more property at a cheaper price. You know. Yeah, but I mean, you could end up in negative equity and own the bank loads of money on your properties and they're not worth diddly squat as what happened here 10 years ago. Um, so it is, it's, there is still a risk. It is a bit like kind of gambling, is it not? There's not nothing really, as a cert. Because for anybody who was in a negative equity situation there 10 years ago, had they not sold, they would no longer be in that negative, negative equity situation. Mm. The, the, you know, it's only there, like, like, and in many cases, it's just a paper, paper value of, of what your property is. It's, it's, it's an opinion at the time. Provided that you're able to rent that property and generate cash flow from that, uh. the, the actual property price is really somewhat irrelevant, provided that you can ensure that you can meet the payments of the, of the mortgages each month. Right. Do you think, you've mentioned there that you're from um, New Zealand. So do you think that Irish people, from your perspective, are a little bit more risk averse maybe than you would be, perhaps because of what happened 10 years ago? Um, then, you know, do you think you're more willing to take a risk, perhaps? Uh, possibly. I, I, look, New Zealand is, New, New Zealand is, is, has implemented things years ago that is only being implemented here now, particularly around tenants' rights and things like that. So, mm-hmm. For me, sometimes some of the things that are being implemented, I would I would expect anyway. So it, it kind of changes changes my viewpoint a little bit. Yeah. Um, but look, there has to be risk taken as part of this process. You know, the moment that anybody starts investing, whether it be in property or the share market or, or buying shares or whatever they do, 
there's going to be an element of risk. And I have lost money. I certainly have lost significant amounts of money early on yeah. where, I made, where I made silly mistakes that I wouldn't make today. Um, and so that's all, but that's all part of the process. I mean, to come back to your previous point, for my son, let's say he were, were to lose that 500 euros, it would actually be the best thing that could happen to him because he would oh, have gosh. taken some bad news early on in his life. He's got oh. more than enough time to recover. You know? And I think, I think the key thing here is no matter what the situation, your worst case scenario is that you have to go and get a job and go back to work yeah. when it comes to early retirement. You know, so you actually find yourself back in the same position that you were anyway. So mm. for me, the upside is, right, I get to retire early. The downside is, well, I return to work and stay in the same situation that I'm currently in anyway. OK, let's come back to the retire early in a moment. I don't know if you saw um, uh, in the Irish Independent this morning on the front page that the government have plans to introduce this kind of stepped increase in our pensions to encourage us to stay working longer. Um, in other words, if we retire at 70, we could potentially, well, we could add 60 euros a week to your pension. Um, how does that how does that fit with, you, with your idea? Imagine working yeah, until I mean, 70. Yeah, look, it, it, it's, it's going to be a reality for, for a lot of people who maybe haven't haven't planned it. Um, look, to be honest, when it comes to early retirement, the general no, the general notion is that we we plan without needing to worry about the state pension, and any state pension is going to be a bonus. Right. Um, it's it's one of these tricky situations, particularly in Ireland, because you know when we hit seventy, we get we, we get medical cards, we get all sorts of benefits coming through. Yet you know, it's, and and it's, typically we're not going to be spending so much. So. The challenge of early retirement is that you need to generate a lot of money when you're younger, and then as you get older, you're going to find that you're not going to need as much money to, to be living day to day, particularly once your children grow up. So there's always challenges there, but to be honest, the equation is, is the same regardless, you know, and, and mm. there's a certain, you know, I think there's a certain niceness about not needing to rely on the state pension if possible, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um Again, in, I mentioned this yesterday, I think in a previous life, um, I worked with the Alzheimer's Society. And one of the things that struck me in my work there was in dealing with couples who were at retirement age. Um, many of them, especially where one of the partners had developed an early onset dementia, perhaps in their 50s or their 60s. It was an echo that I heard so many times of people saying, we had so many plans for our retirement. And now those plans are all, you know, shot to hell. Um do you worry that something could come out of left field that you can't anticipate right now that might snooker your plans um, to to retire early? Oh, absolutely, of course, always. It's, it's always a it's always a consideration. Uh, you know, there's more than just me in this, and so I often think about my own children as well in terms of what legacy that I could pass on. So even if it's something that, for whatever reason, I never get to enjoy because something tragic happens, yeah. I know that I'm going to be leaving a legacy for my, for my children regardless, and, and hopefully hopefully enough funds that their children would also be supported. So it's a little bit about about looking beyond yourself because it is it is certainly challenging. Um, but look, the, the way I would look at it is, is that the ultimate thing that you can buy and you can spend on your money is your own freedom. And that's something that you can't always put a price on. So... That, that's really the sacrifice that, that we're making. And, and truth be told, you know, day in, day out, it doesn't always feel like a sacrifice because we, we're just so used to it as a, as a habit that's ingrained in us. Yeah. Um, if people are listening to us here and, and perhaps aren't, you know, in the situation that you were in, um, where, you, you know, obviously you own now quite a few properties and, and uh, you know, you're getting rental income. But for somebody who might have a small amount of, of savings, you know, a, um, a modest amount of savings, what investments would you say somebody like that should look at who can't afford to buy a house, for example, but where, where should they make their money work best for them? Yeah, there's, there's no magic answer. It depends. But I mean, for most of us, just having an emergency fund 
is great peace of mind. Yeah, you know that's what true. I mean. If you can build up three to six months worth, of, and it's, that's always the first step. But if you, if you if you can build up three to six months worth of of income, which which you know that if you were to lose your job tomorrow, mm. that you're going to be fine and you have time. Mm. That's something which it makes getting up for work each morning so much easier. It makes it so much easier when you get into a situation where maybe you you, you do want to switch jobs and you actually you know you, you want to start looking at that and you're, you're worried about losing your job and so on. Um, so that that's always a great place to start. Mm. Um, you know, none of this like none of this for me came happened overnight. You know, I'm, I'm in my fifth year of doing this now, and in, in my first year it was really about about just trying to save something. And you know, I think we we initially started by saving about ten percent of our income in the first year. And every year we've boosted that up. We've, we've reduced our expenses. I've gone out and, and found ways to make more money and, and change careers or try not change, change jobs where I can to make more money. And eventually now our savings rate is around 75%. So Sorry, say that again to me slowly. Your, your savings rate is around 75%. Yeah, exactly. So we'll be saving about 75% of our income um, can, at the moment. I can hear so. people falling off their chairs all over the place <laughs> as they listen to that and going, holy, yeah. holy God. Um, I, I'm not sure if you have a partner, Michael, but if you do and you are, you're somebody that you wanted to splash out, you know, to, to, to treat them to something. How much would you spend on a luxury item for somebody that you loved very much as birthday or whatever? Yeah, well, I mean, my, 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 my wife is actually turning 40 and, and we're off to Paris for the weekend. So, you know, that's, that's something that's going to fit us back probably three, three or 400 euros, you know, obviously a big birthday. But we plan... Sorry, how much is it going to put you back, Michael? About probably three or 400 euros. So you're doing, it, you're doing it on the cheap? We have, yeah. And we, we, booked it, <laughs> we, we, we booked it six months ago, you know, and, and we, we got all good, good, good deals on the flights and so on, you know. But, like, we, we would want for very little. You know, our, our agenda is to go and, and see the Eiffel Tower and, and, and see, see the Mona Lisa and, and maybe have a nice meal at a restaurant on the Saturday night. But um, One nice yeah. meal. Oh, my one goodness. Nice yeah, yeah, one nice meal, absolutely. <laughs> I hope to God my husband isn't, even though I know we've missed the boat on this, I hope to God my husband isn't listening and getting ideas. You're not staying in a five-star hotel, I wouldn't think then, are you? I don't, I don't think we are. No. No, not, not from the reviews I saw, but um, <laughs> yeah. No, no, look, and, and again, you know, I mean, I, I also have a golf membership and, and there's certain things. So a lot of these things, it's about prioritising. If, yeah. if, if somebody liked going to and staying at five-star hotels, then do that. You know, if you can justify the money and, and the money is going to ultimately unless, unless, for you. Then unless, then Michael, it. they're married to you. <laughs> Come here, can I just ask you just to wrap up finally? Sure. Have you got one big plan that you have in your head for when you retire, this early retirement in a couple of years? What is the first thing or what is the biggest thing you're, you're planning to do with that freedom? Yeah, to be honest, you know, I, I think for many, so many in the fire community, it's about making work optional. Right. You know what I mean? So, so that you don't have to feel like you're working for money and being able to work on, on passion projects. So even actually back in 2019, I worked part-time because my, my youngest son was, was just a baby. Right. And I got to do things like you know, set up sports clubs. I, I, I set up some community projects, a small charity project, little things like that, which, which you don't always get an opportunity to because for so many of us, we're just, we're just so busy with our normal jobs. So right. um, just to go back and do some things like that that really bring satisfaction and, and make you feel good and, and uh, you know, you're not just doing it because because you're getting a paycheck at the end of it. OK, Michael, if people want to, if people are interested and want to kind of know more, is there a way that they can contact this fire community in Ireland so that they could get help and advice if they should? Yeah, need? certainly. So, like, we have a very active Facebook group. Um, there's a okay. couple of groups on meetup.com. Um, and I have my own podcast, which is which is the Irish Fire podcast. Oh, which good. If you just pop that into Google. Um, you, can, you can follow more of my story there. OK, well, I think you've given us loads of food for thought. I'm a little bit depressed, 
But anyway, um, you've given our listeners loads of food for thought and we appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, Michael. That was Michael. No worries. Thank you so much, Barbara. Michael Houghton from the Fire Community in Ireland. Um, I'd love to know what you think about this. Do you think this is something you could do? Could you live frugally in order to uh, retire early? Let us know. Send us a text or a WhatsApp 086 1800 658. But stay with us here on LMFM. After the break, we have two more tickets to give away to the Dom McLean concert. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors Opal. Drogheda to Dorkin Cavan. Discover the all-new Opal Grandland with its bold design, digital cockpit, high-tech features and a choice of petrol, diesel and plug-in electric hybrid. Visit blackstonemotors.ie. And you're welcome back to Late Lunch. It's Barbara Scully here with you. Um, you can get in touch with us by sending us a text or a WhatsApp to 086 1800 658. Now, I think I have a treat. I have a treat in store for me anyway, who's a bit of an animal lover, because did you know that Ireland was once home to brown bears, big, huge brown bears? Bear bones have been found in the caves in, in County Clare. They could be about two and a half thousand years old, but still. Um, we also used to have a large flightless bird called the Great Auk, which is now extinct. The last one was spotted in Waterford in 1834. Imagine that, a big yoke like a penguin that didn't fly. Um, and Ireland, of course, was home to wolves. Their fate uh, was sealed by Cromwell. Nice fella, that fella. Um, and they were hunted to extinction. The last wolf was killed in County Carlow in around about seven. 1786. One man who knows all about this and lots more is Killian McLaughlin who runs an amazing sanctuary up in Donegal in Burnfoot called Wild Ireland and I know how fantastic it is because I've been there and I've met Killian before. So hello Killian. Thank you for joining us hey, today. Hey Barbara. Are you well? You're welcome. I'm very well. Very well. Good, good, Thanks good. Listen, um, I want to ask you first of all about, because I remember listening to you in, in, in real time, as it were, up in Donegal in 2019, talking about uh, the wolves. Uh, the wolves. Um, you're clearly passionate about wolves. So tell us a little bit about the relationship that Irish people had with the wolf before our thinking got bent out of shape. I think you'd agree by Cromwell mainly. Yes. Um, so the Irish people respected and revered the wolf and they called him Mactier. A lot of people will be familiar with that phrase. Mm. And it means son of the land or son of the country. And in Ireland, most people know that the land is king, especially if you're talking to farmers, the mm. land is king. And, and you can imagine that Mactier, son of the land, the prince of the land, um, you know, it was like a term of royalty and they respected and revered the wolf as such. Um, the Irish people didn't even hunt them. Uh, Cromwell put a bounty on their head in 1653 and it was a substantial amount of money. Uh, five pound on a male and six pound on a female. And that was a lot of money back in the 1600s, as you can imagine. Mm. And even then, the Irish people didn't take up that bounty, partly because they weren't allowed to carry guns, but mainly because they had this respect and reverence of the wolf. Almost a bit like what we see um, in the films with the native people of North America, the way that they respect wildlife and nature. And I think I think most indigenous native people had that respect and reverence until, as you said, um, our thinking got put out of skew by sort of silly ideas about um, wolves attacking people. And I, I believe that that came from the big battles that used to take place between the English and the Irish. And when the English came to collect their dead from the battlefields, they saw the wolves scavenging on the dead bodies. And they got this idea that the wolves might be fighting with the Irish. So that was part of the um, part of the, the notion of that they had to exterminate the wolves as such. Good Lord, yeah. So you're saying that before that, that farmers and, I know there weren't big farmers in Ireland then, but that, that, that the people in the, of the land got on quite well with, with the native population of wolves. 
In those days, farming was very different. Uh, yeah. We didn't have these big, silly animals that don't recognise danger. Um, in the old days, if we look at our our native breeds, they all had horns, uh, big horns, and they had instincts that they could defend themselves from wolves. And if we look at our close neighbours on the continent, particularly in the north of Spain, I was there earlier this year, actually, and the fields are full of cattle, the fields are full of sheep, they're full of livestock, and they have one of the biggest populations of wolves in Europe. So there are ways of farming with wolves, um, you know, even having a shepherd dog in the field that'll chase off the wolf if he comes near your livestock. So, yeah, yeah they're, they're, you know, very soon Ireland is going to be the only country still within the EU that doesn't have wolves. So, you know... Are, are there wolves in the UK? There's not, but of course the UK has left the EU. So, okay, um, <laughs> didn't spot is, that sleight of hand there. There are talks of um, reintroducing them into Scotland. Yeah, and you know, I know it's been bashed around by some of our politicians recently about releasing wolves into the wild and that would take care of the, the deer population. But all of that does is, is um, invoke feelings of fear from people. You know, whereas you know, at Wild Ireland, you'll know this. We talk about the ecosystem and how it all works mm. and when you start taking pieces out of that ecosystem, things start falling apart. So the wolf, the bear, the lynx, all the top predators have been taken out of our ecosystem and we're starting to see knock-on problems now, like you know the deer population getting out of control and then it has a knock-on effect when the deer overgraze and deforestation is caused by that. Deer are also harbours of TB, of course, which farmers fear more than wolves. TB will wipe out your whole herd. Um, and it's been shown recently that in areas where there are good, healthy populations of wolves, uh, the, the, the instances of TB are virtually zero or very, very rare in, in wild animals. So that, that all, you know, that, that we have to look at the ecosystem as a whole and how each thing balances against the next. So would you be in favour of a kind of a, um, you know, a slow, gradual reintroduction, a, a kind of considered reintroduction of wolves into Ireland, so, wild uh, wolves? I, I, wouldn't even, I wouldn't even talk about it in the context of reintroducing wolves. I would talk about it in the content, con- context of ecosystem restoration um, and putting all the elements back in. It's a bit like your body, if you can imagine. All the organs work together and the body work, works fine. And yes, you might survive if you take out a kidney or you might be okay without one lung. But if you take out two lungs or two kidneys, you know, things, the weights fall off the wagon very quickly. And the ecosystem is exactly the same. And people need to understand that. And that's the way we need to start thinking and talking about um, the ecosystem and how each piece fits in. And that's where the wolf fits in as part of that. Yeah, so it's part of the whole kind of movement um, towards rewilding of the countryside and bringing it back to how it should be, how nature wanted it to be. Exactly, exactly. And that has lots of positive knock-on effects for ourselves, indeed the farmers and everybody else that might be a bit Talk to me about... Yeah, talk to me about some of the positive effects because I, I know I did read a while ago that I think it was in Yellowstone National Park in the United States they re- reintroduced wolves um, and it was seen to be ultimately a very successful uh, thing. So what, are the, what, what would you see are the benefits of that whole rewilding thing, wolves being part of it in the countryside here? Yeah, er- everything else is where it should be then in the environment. You know, you have the perfect number of deer. Uh, wolves hunt the sick and the weak, they take those out of the population. So you actually have a very healthy population of deer and all of those diseases accordingly go down. Fox numbers um, are very high, unnaturally high at the the moment and they're having knock-on effects 
on the ground nesting birds um, or losing our curlews and our corncrakes because the foxes are taking the eggs. But when you have the wolf there, they keep the fox numbers in check. You have the perfect number of foxes and that allows the ground nesting birds to get enough chicks through to adulthood. Um, and they saw this in Yellowstone. It's a perfect example of when the wolf was reintroduced that everything else fell into line. So they had the deforestation from deer overgrazing. They had the foxes overpreying on the ground nesting birds. But the most interesting thing that happened in Yellowstone was actually they looked at satellite images from 1995 when before the wolf was introduced and today and the river that runs through Yellowstone National Park has actually changed its course wow. because with the presence of the wolf there the, the trees and the bushes along the edge of the streams and the rivers um, were able to grow the deer weren't eating them and that slowed down erosion and a me- the river started to meander more and a meandering river is good news for people that live downstream because a meandering river actually slows down. Flood. Oh, oh what a pity. <laughs> I think uh, we've just lost uh, the line there to Killian. Um, Louise is going to try to get him back on the line because, I mean, I, I just think that is uh, so interesting. Um, and I, far, I must ask him when he comes back, but as far as I know, wolves were the top predator. They, I don't know what the top predator is naturally that occurs in our environment now, but you can understand how by bringing, you know, these the, the, the ecosystem back into how it should have been uh, might be a win-win for all of us, including climate change. Killian, are you back with us there? I am. Sorry. What happened? Don't know what happened there. Are, can I just ask you, I was just waffling there about, are wolves the, the, would they be if they were reintroduced like the top predator? Like who is the top predator that we have now in the wild in Ireland or do we have such thing? Our top predator at the moment is the red fox. They're right. the largest uh, predator, yeah. And then the badger would be... Yeah, you know, and they're not really predators. Like, they're only predators of small things, so, yeah. Correct, yeah. yeah. So the fox is a big one at the moment. So there's nothing above the fox keeping the deer or larger animals in check. In check, that's interesting. I could talk about that all day, but let me move on to, to brown bears because, um, as I said in the introduction there, Ireland was, a long time ago, home to brown bears. And I know you have done amazing work in rehabilitating some brown bears from very sad situations in Eastern Europe. Can you tell us, first of all, before we talk about the particular project that you're working on at the moment can you explain to us what happens when you take these bears that are being kept in less than ideal uh, situations very often as tourist attractions fed a diet of rubbish in a very small um, um, enclosure what happens to these bears when they land up into beautiful Burnfoot in Donegal and into Wild Ireland how do they react initially? With fear, absolute terror. Um, the bears that I have at Wild Ireland were kept in horrendous conditions and they had never even walked on grass, believe it or not. So when I opened the gate and released them into their habitats, which is a natural forest habitat, uh, our big male Donica, who is, you know, 200 and something kg, he's a, he's a big boy. And <laughs> to look at him, you would think he's afraid of nothing. But the poor thing, when he put his paw out onto the grass that first morning, um, it moved under his feet and, and he pulled back. He didn't know what it was. It terrified him. He, he had spent his whole life living on concrete and that was a new sensation. So I had to teach him how to be a bear. I had to teach him how to forage, how to climb trees, how to just behave like a bear. And uh, <laughs> I've got a great picture in my head at the moment of you climbing trees and foraging and shouting at no, Donica. Here, Donica, come quite. on. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, no, basically what I did was I, could, I I looked at what bears do in the wild and how they find their food, and that's what I did. So I, I chopped up the food really small. Yeah. I went out into the habitat every morning. We actually do it three times a day. We go into the habitat and we hide their food. And, and amazingly, our bears 
we've had locomotion studies on our bears that looked at the amount of time that they spend walking, the amount of time that they spend foraging, swimming and resting. And those were compared to bears in the wild and they were almost comparable, which is fantastic. You know, well it's taken us three years to get to this point, but we're actually seeing bear behaviour now from a bear, which is silly when you say it out loud. But yeah. So it's never too late to rehabilitate these bears and to bring them back to never. being how they should be bears. Can you tell us now that I know um, that you have a current uh, project that you're working on trying to get um, a bear, trying to rescue a bear. Is it from Russia? Yeah, there's two bears actually oh. um, that are kept in horrendous conditions in Dagestan. Uh, Boo is the, is the older of the two males and he lives indoors in a stable um, and he spent most of his life there. He's seven years old. And then we have Teopa, who is a younger male. He's five years old and he lives outside with no roof over his head. He has no shelter from the sun, no shelter from the rain. Of course, Dagestan is very cold in the wintertime and he has absolutely no shelter. Um, the bears don't have water. Uh, the, the lady that looks after them has to go down to them with a hose and they drink from the hose because when she tries to give them a dish, they break it, bears oh. being bears. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was asked, could I help them? And for the last year or so, I've been working on the project. And we were starting to get places, of course, and then Putin did what he did mm. in Ukraine and that has really put the big brakes on it. Uh, but we're, we're we're working hard to rescue Boo and Teop and, and bring them here to Wild Ireland and hopefully train them how to be bears again. Okay, and when do you think that might be likely to happen? I mean, have you put everything on hold because of the war in Ukraine or do you think no. it's... No, we haven't. Um, the, the biggest issue for us now is how to get them out. So we're, we're making big progress now with the Department of Agriculture here and the Department of Agriculture in Russia um, who you have to give the green light. Uh, the problem is uh, the EU won't accept them. Um, you know, there's an embargo on Russian goods. So um, sadly, they're classed as Russian goods. So we're trying to get around that. We're trying to work out where they'll enter the EU, where they where they come across the Russian border, and that's so that's that's where we're at with that at the moment. Doesn't that tell you all we need to know about how our attitudes to animals, when you consider that bears were you know creatures, living creatures, are considered as Europe as goods? Um, how can people help you, um, Killian, in that particular endeavour? Because I'm sure there's there's quite a cost involved in all of that. Yeah, so far it's cost the guts of 20000 and we haven't got them anywhere near, near us yet. It's going to end up costing a lot more money. So we do have a donate button on our on our website where people can log in and do, donate. One of the best ways you can support us is come visit Wild Ireland. Um, we rely completely on, on people buying tickets for the gates. And then uh, we have a new offer now where you can actually adopt a bear on our website and you get a lovely certificate of adoption. You get a little t- cuddly toy bear. That's a really nice gift for an animal lover, particularly somebody that likes bears or, or wolves or lynx. We have them all up on our website. So that's a lovely little gift maybe for Christmas. For that's a great idea. And it's also a great idea for kids because not only is it a nice idea, but it also starts to educate them about the care of animals and the responsibility we have to look after all the creatures on this planet, no matter where they are. Um, I just want to ask you as a cat woman, um, because again, one of the the, the animals that uh, really uh, um, uh, stole my heart when I was up there was, have you still just got, oh God, I hope you still have, have you still just got one lynx? We do. Nisha is our lynx that lives here at Wild Ireland. Yeah, she's a beauty. And lynx, he- like most cats, are solitary by nature. The only social cat in, is, in fact, the lion. So they, they're the ones that live in the pride. So in the wild, yeah, the lynx will come together to breed and then they'll chase off their cubs after about a year. So, yeah, they're solitary in the wild as well. So they're as contrary as, as our domestic cats. Did we once have yeah. um, a pop? Would you suspect that we had a population or do we know? Did we have a population? Because I know in, in, in uh, Scotland there are still wild cats in the wild. Did we have a population of wild cats here do you think? 
So the wildcat that's in Scotland is a Scottish wildcat. It's a, it's it's smaller than the lynx. It's about the size of a domestic cat. They also did have lynx, as did we in Ireland, and we know that because there's been fossils of them found um, in County Waterford, I believe. Um, the lynx aren't like bears or wolves that live in caves. Uh, they live out in the open. Right. And when a lynx dies, it obviously dies in the open, and the Irish climate's not very good for preserving fossils. Um, they get washed away. So it's very difficult to say when the lynx went extinct here because there's only ever been one uh, one animal found in County Waterford. But it did confirm that they were here in Ireland at one time as well. Yeah, I like to call them the original Celtic tiger. <laughs> yeah, and a far more a far more uh, nicer kind of idea of a Celtic tiger uh, yeah. than the Celtic tiger we actually had. I know also again from when I was there that you have I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right macaque monkeys. They're, they're the monkeys yeah. I think that live in Gibraltar, if I'm not mistaken. And you That's felt right, that yeah. they had come up through Europe, and there was a maybe remote enough, but a possibility that that they may have had we may have had some monkeys here at one stage. So during the Pleistocene, Europe was a very different place. Sea levels were a lot lower and right. the macaques were able to range right across most of Europe and fossils of them have been found as far north as Norfolk in England. Wow. Uh, we don't know if they ever made it across the Irish Sea, but believe it or not, there have been fossils of them found here in Ireland dating back to 2,000 years ago. Right. Um, but at that time, they would have been brought here by people. Why they were brought here, how they got here, we don't know. Um, but they were certainly brought here by people and it showed that there were trade routes between the Mediterranean and Northern Ireland at a time where they didn't think that was possible. So they're, they're fascinating. They come from the Atlas Mountains in Morocco. Uh, they get really, really cold in the wintertime, so the Barbary macaques love the climate here in, in the wilds of Donegal. Donegal. Believe it or not, they're not put off by the cold. Yeah, yeah it's funny because we always think of monkeys as belonging in jungles and, and places where there's high temperatures. Killian, where does your passion for this work? Because, I mean, this really is... It's not easy work. I mean, it sounds, you know, it's, it's, it's very laudable, but it must be really tough to keep the place going um, to deal with the kind of sadness of bears and other animals who've been treated badly. Where does your passion for this work come from? Yeah, I think, I think most people, most children that I come across have an interest in animals. Um, I think that might be an evolutionary thing that was really important a couple of thousand years ago for all children to be able to identify animals that maybe could kill yes. them or, you know. And I think as we get older, we lose that. I, I was fortunate enough not to lose that and hold on to it and develop it into a passion and then a dream and then thankfully achieve my dream. But as you say, it's a very difficult, particularly when we're dealing with older animals and sick animals and yeah. rescue animals. And we do lose animals, you know, animals pass away mm. despite our best efforts. Uh, and it's tough, you know, it takes it takes a lot to, to keep going. But then when you look at the rewards and we see like a bear that's afraid of grass, now out running around climbing trees and you know it really gives you that reward um, and educating people as well about wildlife and people leave Wild Ireland I think almost with a a sense of loss that we've lost all of these animals yeah. and that makes it all worthwhile you know yeah I remember being struck by you saying that you know you can sleep with the sound of wolves howling which is not a sound that most people in Ireland but at one stage a lot of people in Ireland would have heard listen can I thank you for your time today Killian? I I absolutely can recommend a visit to Wild Ireland it was one of the best days out I had in 2019 just before the world all went to uh, down, down the pan um, and it is a wonderful sanctuary and it is a great place to visit a great place to bring kids and to educate them and look continued success um, with all your work and I hope we manage to get those bears out of Russia and if people can help go on to the website of Wild Ireland and make a donation or adopt a bear or better still 
get up to to Donegal. You can fly up to Donegal. It's an amazing flight, actually. It's it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful uh, journey up to Donegal and go and visit uh, Killian and the bears and the lynx and uh, the wolves up in Wild Ireland in Donegal. Killian, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Stay with us here on uh, Late Lunch because after the break we have two brilliant songs for the two on Tuesday. The Little Drogheda to Dorkin Cavan. Discover the all-new Opal Grandland with its bold design, digital cockpit, high-tech features and a choice of petrol, diesel and plug-in electric hybrid. Visit blackstonemotors.ie and welcome back to Late Lunch. Barbara Scully here with you and I'm bracing myself for the next segment which I think is probably going to be a little bit traumatic because I have a definite feeling I wasn't a particularly brilliant mammy but holy God I was a disaster at lunch boxes and I also managed to bring up the fussiest eaters ever who had the same not very nutritious thing every day in their lunch box. I think all the way through both junior and secondary school I hang my head in shame. Um, I know times have moved on um, but I, I definitely don't think any of my kids ever opened their lunchbox and went, oh, yay, great, yummy, yummy. Anyway, to, to so that you don't have to be the bad parent that I think I probably was, I am now going to talk to Deirdre Doyle from the Cool Food School, which I have to say very slowly, which is a wonderful uh, resource for parents and ki- of kids of all ages. And Deirdre's going to talk to us about lunchboxes. Hi, Deirdre, how are you? Barbara, you're breaking my heart there. I know. You're not a bad parent at all. Oh, what are you talking about? <laughs> Deirdre, if you'd have seen into the lunchboxes, and I remember when my girls were halfway through probably junior school, the school introduced this thing where the teachers checked their lunchboxes every day to make sure there was no rubbish <laughs> in them. And I mean, that put the heart crossways in me altogether because, as I say, <laughs> I think we've moved on from the old hang sanger that went in in the white bread every single day. And then there was the weekly yeah, apple. Yeah. I was a disaster. Tell me, tell me, tell me, what should I have been doing? What do children actually, well, first of all, what do they need in their lunchboxes? And then we'll get on to what will they eat in their lunchboxes. Yeah, 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 yeah. What they need and what they eat. Yeah, yeah, two different things. And to be fair, Barbara, I think if you were putting a ham sandwich in every day and they were eating it, that is better than putting um, the most amazing salmon and cream cheese and (laughs) lettuce (laughs) Concoction. It's the lunchbox that they don't eat. Because can, can I tell you what my what my youngest daughter actually took every day? Now she's we're now all a family of vegetarians, and she was the first one who started down the vegetarian route. All she would eat for me was a wrap with sweet corn. End of story. Nothing else. A wrap it's and sweet corn. Out. It did fall out. It was all over the shop, yeah. And it was all a soggy mess by the time she got to it. But yeah, that was what she wanted. That's what she got. Yeah, that's a new one on me. I haven't heard that one before. I don't think it's very nutritious, Deirdre. What kind of nutrition should kids have in their lunchboxes? Well, definitely you need a a carb. So carb is is your bread, obviously, or your wrap or your roll or... um, if, if your child is not big into bread, because I know not every child loves sandwiches, mm. it could be something along the lines of rice or wholemeal pasta, um, some kind of carb, because that's what's going to give them energy for the day, the, the day in school. Then the other thing that's really important. So if you if you were to only get these two things into your school lunchbox, I think, and and that your kid will eat. Yeah. Because again, if they're not eating it, There's you no might point. as well put nothing in. There's mm. no point. Um, is protein, some form of protein. So protein in terms of, again, it could be your ham, it could be a bit of ham, chicken, eggs, um, any kind of uh, pulse. So chickpeas, black beans, Lentils. kidney beans. Yeah. 
lentils, absolutely. Uh, seeds are a great thing because they don't have a massive taste and they're easy to put into things. Yeah. And like chia seeds are brilliant and kids don't really object too much to them because they actually really don't taste anything. But like seeds are full of protein and full of fiber. So they would be the top, they would be the two essentials. And then after that, your fruits and vegetables, obviously you'd be looking to put fruit in as much as possible. Like my kids would take fruit every day. Um, Vegetables are a little bit harder to get into the lunch boxes, but there's, there's ways and means to get them in. Um, are you in, can. Are you in favour of hiding and disguising things, no, chopping no, them up no, into no, tiny no, bits? No, no, okay. No, See, there, no, I went wrong no, there no. as well. Disaster. Ah, listen, Barbara. <laughs> if I don't even met you, <laughs> I know <laughs> you. You and my first guest talking about how to how to retire early with a very healthy pension. But anyway, <laughs> carry on. <laughs> You were only doing your best at the time, I'm sure. That's a great um, excuse, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, no, I'm not a fan of that because okay. basically your child doesn't know what they're eating. Yeah, and true. if they don't know what they're eating, how are they ever going to know that they like or dislike something? So, no, I, I don't agree with hiding it on the child. What I do agree with is using a vegetable in a way that makes it really tasty. So that could be chopping it up small and putting it with something else. But it's not hiding it. It's not kind of you know, sneaking it in, into the sandwich so hiding it onto this piece of ham so that the child doesn't see it. <laughs> and now I, I, I will admit I have done that a couple of times at lettuce like years ago, but I don't do it anymore. Um, but absolutely you can, and it's hiding is the wrong word. You can use vegetables in a way that they're not 100% discernible. But if your child is involved in the cooking process, they know what's going into something um, then that's okay. I'm, I'm all, I'm all on for that. But hiding for say, no, I wouldn't be a fan of that now. And you, you also then maintain that we should be getting our children involved in preparing their own lunches as early as possible. How early is as early as possible? Are you talking transition year? Ah, uh, listen, Barbara, transition year. Are you having a laugh? No, from junior infants on, I would be saying. junior infants. <laughs> Junior infants, absolutely. Why okay. not? Okay. I work. I work with children from about age three upwards, so I can see what they can do, and they are well able from a, you know, physical perspective to do it. Um, it's just us parents are, you know, reluctant to let them do it for a whole manner of different reasons. I mean, yes, it's slower, it's messy, it's, um, it takes time. But can I tell you, I. I want to put this out there so that people are not, you know, in 10 years time going, oh, why didn't I know about that sooner? You're 10, you know, you in 10 years time will be so glad that you put the time in with your children when they were younger to show them how to make their school lunches. Mm. Because now I haven't made a school lunch in years. Oh God. So my kids make their own all the time. I don't get involved in it. They make them, now getting them to clean up is a whole other story. But anyway, that's not the, <laughs> the segment of the best. I'm still trying to teach my 22-year-old that bit, yeah. Oh, listen, listen. <laughs> and do you find that kids enjoy the the uh, the power they have or the autonomy they have in making, maybe not three-year-olds, but a little bit older, do they enjoy the fact that they get to make their own lunches? Do they then get to decide what they want in their own lunchbox within? Okay, of, so within reason. So yeah. first of all, they, they know it's in their lunchboxes, so there's no surprises. Right. They're only going to put stuff into their lunchboxes that they're happy to eat. So you know that the lunch is being eaten. Um, because again, going back to the, you know, the sweet corn wrap, if if your daughter wasn't going to eat it, if, if you were putting in something else like the salmon sandwich and she wasn't eating it, well then the sweet corn wrap is better than nothing than, yeah. the, than the salmon sandwich. But um, 
if yeah so I know parents out there are probably going oh my god if I let them make their own lunches they'd bring in yeah like jam and sugar sandwiches they'd bring in six packets of crisps yeah you know but what you have to also at the same time as you're allowing them to make their own lunches is you have to follow a strategy called the division of responsibility and feeding so this is a strategy created by an American guru called Ellen Sater Okay. And what she says is that um, there are two parents have a responsibility and children have a responsibility when it comes to feeding. So the parents' resp- responsibility is the what, where, and when. So it's the what, so the what they eat, the where they eat it, and the when. So that means that we provide the food. So that's the what. Right. We provide it where. So in this instance, it's going to be in their school lunches, and the when. Then well, that's different. So this is an overall thing. So you you would use it at home as well. So we are providing the food that we want our children to eat. The um, how much and if if at all is is the child's responsibility. Mm. So their responsibility is to eat whatever they want that we have provided. That's very important. We have to provide the food, and then they decide whether or not they eat it. Right. It's not our responsibility to sit over them, waiting for them to eat their food, spoon feeding. That's not our responsibility. We just provide the food and walk away. So in the case of lunch boxes, it's very simple. If you want your child to eat um, a tuna sandwich for lunch, you provide tuna for lunch. You don't offer jam. You don't have it. <laughs> this is this is this is the modern version of what my mother used to say with to us which is which went something like, uh, "Do you think this is a hotel? There isn't a menu. That's your dinner." That's it, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I think what we're what we're offering children too often is uh, too many Choice. choices. They get overwhelmed. And then they stick with what they know and what is familiar to them. Yeah. Because I'm just writing, uh, giving a webinar on, on um, neophobia, which is the fear of new foods. And children are afraid of things that they don't know. I was just going to ask food. you about that because I think that's one of the biggest challenges that parents have is getting kids to try things, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. try new things. Yeah, yeah, it is the biggest challenge. And the lunchbox is not the place to have new food. Right. Uh, let me Let me state that because... Um, if they're not familiar with it at home, they're never going to try it in school. Yeah. And as you're probably aware, there's a lot of other things going on in school at lunchtime. There's, they're having the chats with their friends. They're trying to get into the yard. They're excited, sad, anxious, whatever. So adding new food into that mix is not a great idea. It's not the time so or the place, get, yeah. yeah. Not the time or the place, exactly. Mm. So you get the child familiar with the new food at home. And I am a big advocate of making food fun. And um, that is about things like, so for example, with, with tomatoes, I would encourage kids to smell them, feel them, cut into them, what they look like on the inside, get a magnifying glass out, what, how many seeds are in that tomato compared to that tomato. Sure. Does a green tomato taste different to a yellow tomato? Yeah. Let's, let's squash a tomato and see what it looks like when it's squashed. Let's spit it out and see what it, how far it goes. Okay. All these kind of things. I know parents are going, oh my God. Spitting tomatoes all over my kitchen. Oh Jesus, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, if people want to get more information, uh, Deirdre, on this, because it is interesting and I think we all need to, I think our children need to learn. I had to learn about nutrition only a couple of years ago. (laughs) And if I'd have done it when I was younger, it would have been a lot easier. Um, Where can people get more information? From your website? Yeah. Yeah, I'm at www.thecoolfoodschool.ie or I'm on Instagram. I'm very, uh, I do a lot of Instagram, so I'm at the Cool Food School. If anybody is interested in Instagram, I, I put lots of 
bits and pieces up there and right. try to make it as funny as possible. <laughs> excellent, excellent. That's what we all need. A bit of a laugh while we're I learning. Know, I know. Deirdre, yeah, 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 absolutely. Listen, continued success to you in, in changing all the bad mammies like me um, and making the better no, no, mammies no, no, and no, making no, our children no. you Don't healthier. be saying that. Don't be saying that. Don't be saying that. <laughs> Listen, I appreciate it. I appreciate I, I your time. Say, yes. Yeah, just one quick thing is we need to get our kids excited about food. Yes. Excited about healthy food and make that the norm rather than, you know, all the processed foods that are out there at the moment. Good so, message. Yeah. Good message to finish on. Yeah. Deirdre, thank you very much indeed uh, for Thanks joining us today. That was uh, Deirdre Doyle from the Cool Food School. Back after these the last part of Late Lunch with me, Barbara Scully. I've just had a message in actually from a listener who has asked me to tell you that there are, I think it's the ongoing roadworks at the M1 uh, Business Park in Drogheda and they're causing delays of around about 10 minutes there or thereabouts. This listener tells us to avoid the area if at all possible. So that's a nice public service announcement there from a listener. Thank you very much for taking the time uh, to let us know about that. Now it is time for our Artist of the Week who is Don McLean. And I have good news for you, Nolene Curran in Slane. If you're still listening, you have won, you are today's winner of the two tickets to go and see uh, Don McLean in concert in the Three Arena in Dublin on the 7th of October. So I uh, I hope you enjoy that. I'm very sure that you will. Um, and you can be in with a chance to win tomorrow. So stay tuned to Late Lunch all of this week. We've tickets to give away every day. Our song, Today, from the Artist of the Week, is probably one of his uh, most well-known songs and it is Vincent. It was the second single from his second album, which was titled Vincent, and it was charted on the 18th of March 1972, where it reached number 12 in the US charts and number one in the UK. So all the years of Don McLean playing small gigs in clubs and coffee houses paid off and he was now performing at sellout concerts worldwide. Vincent is off the song is often uh, referred to by the first line of the song, which is Starry, Starry Night. And it is an homage to the artist Vincent van Gogh. Don McLean says he was reading a biography of van Gogh when he came up with the idea of composing a song about him. What's I think very beautiful about this song is that uh, McLean understands Van Gogh's struggle. He understood that Van Gogh wasn't crazy, but that he was affected by an illness. In the song, he says, now I understand what you tried to say to me and how you suffered for your sanity. If you listen carefully to the song, you'll hear that Mitlene not only sings about Starry Night, which is one of Van Gogh's most famous paintings, but also other paintings by the artist. But I think it's the heartbreaking lyrics that make Vincent such a timeless song and that resonates with so many of us. This is Vincent. Starry, starry night. Isn't that just absolutely beautiful? I was lost there listening to that beautiful, beautiful song. Anyway, don't go away. After the break, we are going to be talking Debs. Does it put the heart crossways in you? We have Alan McCardle coming up from Debs, Ireland to talk to. Don't go away. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors Opal. Drahada to Dock and Cabin. Discover the all-new Opal Astra with its bold design, stylish looks, low running costs and innovative technology. Get ready to go further with the new generation Astra. Visit blackstonemotors.ie I'm smiling here. We just got another message in from Eamon Indenlear who says, don't be avoiding the M1 area where there's roadworks. Just leave 10 minutes earlier. 
Thank you, Raymond. That's, yeah, you've got a choice there. So it's up to you whichever way you want to do that. Anyway, can you smell the fake tan, the nail polish? Can you hear the Hummers starting their engines? We're about to enter Deb season, which I think will put the heart crossways in many parents with the expense and the general head wreck of the entire project. But Debs have been around for a long time now and they're not going anywhere. On the line to talk all things Debs, I am joined now by Alan McCardle of Debs Ireland. How are you, Alan? Not too bad, Barbara. Thank you. The good. It's nice for you to join us. It's good to talk to you. For you, first of all, tell me what do Debs Ireland do? We organise Debs throughout the whole country from the very beginning, as in choosing the venue, uh, helping the students choose the venue, right through to organising the tickets, the purchase of the tickets, the transport on the night, the security, the whole event, the theme, whatever it is they want, all the details. We do the whole lot for them. So your bosses are the kids and the students who are, they organise this themselves because schools don't organise Debs, sure they don't. Some schools are involved, uh, some parents are involved, but the vast majority would be the students themselves. Excellent, right. Can I ask you, I mean, you may not know this, but just from your experience, um, would you estimate how much most individual kids, be they girls or boys, spend on their Debs? What's the total kind of outlay, do you reckon? I presume it's more for girls because of hair and makeup and all the rest of it. it well, it used to be, but yes, it still is more for girls, but the lads are definitely catching up. You're talking about several hundred euro, so. and the ticket price is probably the cheapest part of that, but it is the cheapest part of that. Uh, when you spend, like some girls would spend anything from less than 100 euro on a dress to several hundred and uh, some of the lads now uh, are hiring out suits, but then some of them will also buy suits, again, three, four hundred. I noticed from uh, some of the parents ringing up late after the event, mm-hmm. and anyway, not the students themselves, sorry. So yeah. it is an expensive thing. Hummers now aren't as expensive as they used to be. I'm actually shocked at that. I remember in, during the Celtic era, you, <laughs> uh, Hummers were 1,200 euros plus. You wow. can actually get a helicopter for one hour for 12.50. And that <laughs> is what some students did. We had people being helicoptered in to some of our events during the uh, Celtic Tiger. Oh, sure. It's no wonder we all lost our heads completely back then. A helicopter <laughs> to your Debs. My God, in yeah. my day, you didn't even get your hair done. Yeah, it was mad. It's mad. And that, but that's the very least of time for a whole lot. It's a, it's an expensive thing for them, as you said, especially for the girls. Yeah, and I mean, as a, as a, you know, a seasoned veteran of this, I put three girls uh, through Debs and uh, one worse than the next. But I would I would absolutely, I'm sure you'd agree with me. My advice would be, particularly as I say with girls, I know the lads with the suits is different, but don't spend a lot of money on the girls' dresses because, it, it, with one exception, the dresses that my girls wore all came home banjoed and wrecked. Yeah, well, what I would be saying is. Some of the girls that have won our best dress competitions in previous years have spent less than 100 euro yeah. on the dress. So it's, it's, it's madness spending a fortune because as you said, we see it often. One of the things our medic is, is preoccupied throughout the night is uh, supplying um, thread and needle and <laughs> safety pins for girls after sta- someone else after standing on their dress at the yeah. bottom and all this kind of thing. Like, you know. Like- so I wouldn't be going crazy spending that kind of money on them at all. And stains that are impossible to remove and that you don't really want to know what they are, but they don't come out. <laughs> no, no. But I think one thing about the fashion, what has changed dramatically yeah. over the years is the lads. Really? The girls have always spent a lot and were always very yeah. sharp. But the lads are equally as sharp now. Now, they've gone in recent years from the McGregor look, which was the... the um, 
I think what do you call him? Uh, Leo Freiko was copying it for a bit too. Tight, they, tight shirts. The suit, tight shirt, the suit halfway up their arm, the trousers halfway up their leg, all of that. That's gone a little bit less. Oh, hallelujah. A little bit less fitted now, uh, but it, it, they're, they're very sharp. They're getting more adventurous with their colours, the material of the suit, the shoes, the footwear, the accessories. They're a lot, lot more adventurous now. It's, it's really like fashion for the lads. It's just important. Isn't that great, though? I mean, that's a real progress that we've made. You know, that like, you know, in my day, the lad just hired the, the, the monkey suit in black and there was no, like, if you put on a fancy tie, like that had a bit of colour in it, that oh, was about as it, much like, as he yeah. could do. Um, now the ties match the girls and the, the mm. girls dress the whole lot, like, you know, mm. so there's all of that. Yeah. Of course, the biggest stress, Alan, I don't think is something you offer and maybe it's something you should consider. And again, I'm going back to both my own day and my own girls' days is finding the date for the depths. Yeah. <laughs> That's usually the thing. You can buy everything else, but it can be we, we, fierce hard we, to find a date. The, the, the date, actually, what a lot of people do now is, this is lads and girls, yeah. they go with their mates. I know at yeah. the back, when I was going for the depths, you picked a girl that was weird your league that would always say no to you but you chance her arm <laughs> and the night of your debts she'd probably want to go to the debts so she'd probably say yes yeah. so that's what we normally do but now it's completely different so what we find is that anybody who isn't going with someone or very friendly with someone they'll take a mate or they'll just go with a group of friends that's yeah. what they like yeah, yeah, brilliant. Do you think just briefly before we wind up, Alan, do you think that uh, young people are a bit wilder now than in your day or my day? My day was probably a lot before your day, but do you think people are wi- are young people wilder now? Uh, no. No? <laughs> no. Even though our nights, was, our, our devs, um back in the day we finished much early like 2 o'clock or something in the yeah. morning even though they'd finished now 4 or 5 in the morning uh, they are not wild or no I, I, I think we were a bit more a bit wild well I'm talking about me as I'm, I'm in uh, 50 now at this stage so, Right you're only a child you're only yeah. a child <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but what I do find is that um, on, on the, no, what, an interesting trend that we've noticed more recently is mm. that uh, regarding drugs and all this kind of stuff mm. is that this year, there's a lot less of it than there has been in previous years. Oh, well, that's uh, good news. Which, which is a good news thing, like, you that's know. That's good news. I'd say there'll be a lot of mammies and daddies now breathing a sigh of relief to hear that news uh, yeah, from you no, today. Uh, we would be very, very vigilant. So it's not that we're taking our eye off the ball or anything like that. So that, that is a good news thing. But regarding the energy, no, I would I would think we were all just as wild when we were younger. See, I, it's I hard think. to believe now, isn't it, when you get to, to our age and beyond that we were ever wild. People yeah. look to us and go, he was never wild, she was never wild, but we were. Anyway, there was no cameras to record our wildness back no, in the day, that, which is good news. Well, well, I'll tell you something on the camera thing there as well. What I noticed is this whole thing about the fake life and living your best oh, life. I, I witnessed a group of girls, but six or seven of them on the dance floor. All One girl was holding up the camera and they were all twirling around. Yeah having the best night of their lives ever and as soon as that camera came down they were looking at each other they weren't even talking to each other on the dance they weren't dancing and I was thinking they're going to send that to some girl who wasn't able to make their debs and that girl someone's going to think they missed out on a great night oh god that's a whole other conversation isn't it that we need to have listen Alan, we have to leave it there, but thank you for joining us. The best of luck with the busy season ahead. I hope it all goes very well. No problem. Um, Thanks, Barbara. Thank you. Don't go away. Next up is Eddie with The Drive. We are playing out today with a bit of Dermot Kennedy. This is Better Days. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087 660 237.
or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.